Good morning, everybody. All right, Isaiah 66. You should be able to find Isaiah by now. You've certainly had uh, enough time to practice. So um, we're going to walk through these verses and talk about them a little bit. I definitely want to um, uh, to have you uh, chime in uh, as you feel uh, led. If there are comments that just come to mind about our year in Isaiah, uh, definitely want to hear those. And um, here we go. Verse 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you can build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. These may be my favorite verses in the whole chapter. Uh, I'll come back at the end. But as I read these, it talks about God's perspective of himself in a way. God's perspective of himself. And of course, really, the whole Bible is, is that, uh, in that he has revealed himself to us. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't have any clue as to who God is if he had not uh, thought so much of us to, to show, of, show us of himself. But what does he say? He says, first of all, I am so bigger than you can imagine. I'm just so bigger than that. It says, the earth is my footstool. Now, you know, in our houses, you know, we've got recliners and ottomans and all these various manners of propping up our feet. There probably wasn't a whole lot of that kind of comfortable furniture back then. I'm just guessing. Uh, you know, people walked everywhere. And we know from other places in the Bible, you know, Feet got dirty, you know. If, if it rained, I guarantee it was mud up to the ankles. Mm. You know, um, I'm sure the average footstool, even though people washed their feet, it probably wasn't exactly a sacred place necessarily. But he says, you know, I am so bigger, so much bigger. The earth is just my footstool. He says, where is a house that you could build for me? And he says, basically, I can't be contained. In our vernacular, you can't put me in a box. You can't understand me enough to, to compartmentalize me. All of your theories, and we know this from other studies, all of the ways that we try to, the systems that we try to come up with to understand God, they're crutches for us, and I'm not saying they're not helpful, but you know, if we ever think that our theories and our systems are really enough to explain God, then... We need to remember this verse. He can't be contained. And he says, you know, everything here is because I called it into being. He says, thus all these things came into being. My hand made all these things. I'm the creator. And then one of the most amazing verses that says, and in spite of all that, do you know what I'm really interested in? You know who I'm really interested in? Somebody whose heart is toward me and my word. 
That's what I'm interested in. That's who I care about. Great pastors have done entire series of messages on these verses. Definitely worth underlining and revisiting. Verse 3. But who kills an ox is like one who slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like the one who breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering is like one who offers swine's blood. He who burns incense is like the one who blesses an idol. As they have chosen their own ways, their soul delights in their abominations. So I will choose their punishments. I will bring on them what they dread because I called out. No one answered. I spoke. They didn't listen. They did evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. So in verse 3, we have the coupling of a, a ritual, a sacrifice that God ordained, put together with essentially its opposite. Right? You slay an ox, but it's like murder. You sacrifice a lamb, it's like one who breaks a dog's neck. If you had a, an inferior sacrifice, you broke its neck, and dogs were considered unclean. And The point here is that the ritual without the heart is an abomination. The ritual without the heart Get it away from me. It is an abomination to me. It's almost worse than nothing. I'm going to punish them. First four. Verse five. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word, your brothers who hate you, who exclude you for my name's sake. They've said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but they will be put to shame. This was kind of an interesting uh, verse, I guess I'll read verse 6. Um, the latter part says, the voice of the Lord is he who is rendering recompense to his enemies. The point here is that there will be people who profess to know the Lord but prove themselves to be actually against God because of the way they treat God's people, God's chosen people. So a heart toward God is always going to have a heart toward his people. This implies some deceit. They may say they're for God, but you kind of really know where they stand because of how they're treating God's people. Verse 7. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Who has heard such a thing? Who is seen such things. Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery? Shall I, who gives delivery, shut the womb, says your God? This birth language conjures up several things. You know, anytime there's the concept of the birth of a boy, we think of Jesus. And this before she travailed. Some people see in that verse imagery perhaps of the tribulation that the Jews will primarily go through and that the birth of Jesus preceded that. So some people with a prophetic outlook can certainly see that. Um, 
some people say, well, this has to do with Israel's return to the land um, uh, in the millennium at, when God restores things. Um, he can restore things as quickly as he wants and that it could certainly happen very quickly. <clears throat> Much of the language that we've seen in this last third of Isaiah has been about the millennium and the time of restoration and recovery and healing and that leads us into this next passage verse 10 be joyful with Jerusalem and re rejoice for her all you who love her be exceedingly glad with her all you mourn over her you may nurse and be satisfied you may suck and be delighted verse 12 for thus says the Lord behold I extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream you shall be nursed you shall be carried on the hip fondled on the knees as one whom his mother comforts so I will comfort you and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem then your heart shall see this your heart shall be glad your bones shall flourish like the new grass and the hand of the Lord shall be made known to his servants he'll be indignant toward his enemies um, again in the millennium things will be finally as he has always intended recovery bounty of the land uh, just everything the way God intended and this verse 13 as one whom his mother comforts so I will comfort you and so many times in Isaiah we heard this theme of of comfort right um, especially over the last 20 or so chapters chapter 40 verse 1 comfort oh comfort my people God says uh, that was the you'll remember uh, we listened to that section of the Messiah comfort ye my people this whole one of the whole themes of Isaiah has been of comfort. Uh, Warren Wiersbe, uh, a great uh, theologian, I've, I've benefited from his commentary on Isaiah, and his entire commentary he titles, as he kind of does in a lot of his writings, he titles this one, Be Comforted. His way of summing up the whole book was, Be Comforted. And what is it that gives us comfort? Well, it's security. It's knowing who's in charge. It's knowing the end of the story. It's knowing that God is behind it all and in it all and working it all toward our benefit. Truly, we can be comforted. But in Isaiah, we've always seen there's that, there's that other side. There's the justice side of God. Verse 15, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger with fury, his rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire and by his sword on all flesh, and those who slain by the Lord will be many. There's going to be a day. There's going to be a day that, you know that verse was in Hebrew, says, Vengeance is mine. Vengeance is his, and there's going to be a day 
when, uh, yes, bounty for those who are in the Lord and punishment for those who aren't. Let's look at verse 19. And I will set a sign among them. I guess uh, verse 18. Um, it talks about the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory. And we've talked again in several uh, of the last chapters about uh, the nations and there will be a day where they will recognize Israel as God's chosen people and when they see the glory um, of Israel, and then that's going to bring other nations uh, toward Israel in ways that I've got to be honest, I don't totally understand. Verse 19 refers to this. It says, I will set a sign among them, will send survivors from them to the nations. And it lists all the, uh, these uh, areas, and, and this would have represented the, the, probably the limits of the known world uh, back then. Verse 20, then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord. This remnant of believing Israelites will travel as missionaries to the corners of the world to tell the Gentiles about God's glory and then they're going to respond and come and and bless Israel and bless the Lord as well. And then to wrap up, verse 22. For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, so your offspring and your name will endure. And it shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath all mankind will come to bow down before me. But in this new Jerusalem, it says that uh, they'll be able to, verse 24, go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worms shall not die and their fire shall not be quenched and they shall be an abhorrence to all mankind. This verse may sound familiar. This is a verse that Israel, I'm sorry, that Jesus quoted as a representation of hell. Again, there will be an accounting so how do you sum up all of this? How do you sum it all up? I guess I should pause. Any, any of those particular verses uh, call to mind any comments or questions? One commentator in his closing passage I, I thought was pretty good. It says, throughout his book, Isaiah has presented us with alternatives. Trust the Lord and live, or rebel against the Lord and die. He has explained the grace and mercy of God and offered his forgiveness. He has also explained the holiness and wrath of God and warned of his judgment. He has promised glory for those who will believe and judgment for those who scoff. He has explained the foolishness of trusting man's wisdom and the world's resources. The prophet calls for the professing people of God back to spiritual reality. I think this is a good point. We have to remember this, these writings, these sayings of the prophet 
they weren't just for the sake of prophecy, right? They were, they were designed to mean something, to have an impact on the people who were hearing them contemporaneous when it was written. So as we think about that, it's not, it's not just so that we'll know that things will be great one day. It should make a difference now. It should have made a difference then, and it should still make a difference now. Again, to finish up this, it says, the prophet calls the professing people of God back to spiritual reality. He warns against hypocrisy and empty worship. Any hypocrisy and empty worship going on right now? He pleads for faith, obedience, a heart that delights in God, and a life that glorifies God. Do we still need all those things? Absolutely. Turn to Acts chapter 7. As you're turning there, you may remember the latter part of the Gospel of Luke. Of course, Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. And you remember how Luke closes out the Gospel of Luke? Do you remember the story? It's one of my favorite stories. It's where Jesus meets up with the two guys that they're traveling. This is after the resurrection. And they sit down to breakfast. And if I can... In Luke 24, 27, you don't necessarily have to turn there, but um, the people, the, the two guys who were traveling on the outskirts of Jerusalem, about six or seven miles, so a bit of a good piece from Jerusalem. And they're telling Jesus about what all happened. And Jesus, in verse 27, he says, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. In other words... Jesus went back and he put it all together for him. Right? He put it all together. Well, I think Luke, being a good historian, a good physician, liked to get the whole story. And so I think he was probably really attracted and really wanted to give justice to those types of events. So in chapter 7 of Acts, we have Stephen who's been brought up on basically trumped up charges. And here we have his defense. And he's put on trial saying that, that he's, um, he's been doing things that weren't right, that things were the, against the law, and he's in this, um, uh, I guess, theological trial. And beginning in... Chapter 7, verse 1, it says, And the high priest says, Are these things so? In other words, you've heard the accusation. What's your defense? And look at what Stephen does. He says, verse 2, Hear me, brothers and fa- or brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham 
when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. In other words, before, I mean, basically this is when Abraham was called, when he was Abram. That's when Stephen went back to put it all together. That's when he started his defense. So turn on over to chapter, I mean, to verse 48. By the way, if you really understand the way Stephen puts together the story in Acts chapter 7, then you have a pretty good idea of why we have the Old Testament. Because it's, it's all leading up to Jesus. But look what he says, uh, I guess in verse 46 is a good place. It says, And David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. And here's where he quotes Isaiah. It says, However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? And then turning to his accusers, he says in verse 51, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit, and you're doing just as your fathers did. As you read on, you can realize they didn't take too kindly to that. And, of course, he was put to death. Stephen put it all together. These religious people who by this day and age thought they were, in fact, in charge of the ritual. Right? They thought they got to make the call. They got to be the ones to keep God in a box, to keep God in a house, to be in charge of who kept the rules and who didn't. And they thought so much of themselves that they thought they could bring him up on charges. Stephen says, no, you guys don't understand. You guys don't understand. And he called them right on it, verse 51. He says, you're stiff-necked and uncircumcised in your heart. And just like all those people back in Isaiah's day, when we, have, we had those comparisons of all the different sacrifices that just were abhorrent because they were done in the wrong way, so he says, you don't, you, don't get to, you don't get to do it. This is happening, Acts is happening after the resurrection. Jesus can, I mean, uh, Stephen can see now, it's clear. This is where it was all leading up to, folks. Those old institutions, they're gone. They're gone. We are now living under the same rules that were in play when Stephen said these words. So as I reflect on Stephen's analysis of what was going on then, we probably have the same risk, right? Um, We've had 2,000 years to 
box ourselves into various denominations, right? To say this creed is the best one and that one's the best one, or you know, this is the proper worship and this is the proper attire and this is the proper proper music, and we probably need to continue to have a certain amount of humility uh, in that, right? Now, the good thing is authentic Christianity looks pretty authentic no matter what denomination you're in, right? If you see a brother or sister in Christ and you know their brother and sister in Christ, there's so much in common there that it really doesn't matter what denomination they're in. I, I uh, sometimes... You know, people make references in the office, and and I'll get the uh, the notion that they're probably a believer by their manner and so forth, and and I'll ask some sort of question that kind of confirms that, and I'll say, uh, "So, what flavor are you?" <laughs> because number one, it kind of diminishes the the walls of denominations, right? And it kind of puts us all in our place. It's just a flavor, right? But number two, flavor is a good thing. And I think that there is a certain amount of richness that each denomination does bring to, to um, uh, our, our great big fellowship of Christianity. Um, but we need to, I think the same caution that Isaiah had and the same caution that Stephen had about putting God in a box still applies. And the other important thing is that they were all pointing to Jesus. They're all pointing to Jesus. And in some of those early parts of Isaiah that were kind of hard to maintain our focus, at least for me, I was asking, what does this passage tell us about God? What does this passage tell us about Jesus? And what does this passage tell us about man? And I think some of those same things we could look at. So what does today's passage tell us about God? Right, we said that at the start, right? He is so big. He is so interested in us. But he has standards and he wants us to relate to him the way he wants us to relate to him. And he wants us to care about his, who he is and what he says. What does it say about us? It says that we still need him. And we need to do things the right way. And it's all about the heart. And how do we, the only way we can get a changed heart is through our Savior, through Jesus. That's all I got. That's all I got. Anything else? Art, was it Isaiah 6 where he said, Who will go for me or who will I send? And he said, Here am I, send me. Yes. That was always a key point for me. That still applies today. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Yep. Anything other? Any other parts of Isaiah?
finished on time. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us along this journey, for the things that you've taught us, for the things that you've um, shown us, and and uh, for the fellowship that we've had as we've looked at uh, this passage, this whole section of Isaiah. And uh, we pray that you'd continue to bring it to our memories as we uh, continue our studies in the weeks and months and years ahead that um, we, perhaps like our Savior, could look back and, and uh, reflect and, and quote those things that are still meaningful and still appropriate. Father, we thank you for Jesus, um, the whole point of the story, and we thank you for um, the glory that you get when uh, things are done in your way. And we thank you that we can be comforted because we know you are in charge. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody.